0: this morning, uh, we're glad you're here, Uh, and that's time for me to start. So uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 18. We're going to switch up a little bit. We're typically in Luke. Today, we're going to jump over to John. He gives us a little different take on what I want to talk about this morning, so I want to spend some time in John chapter 18. I don't know um, if you've ever been there before, but we've all, at some point in our life, probably, have had uh, some kind of label put on us. It could be a really good label it could be uh, a negative one Um, but oftentimes what i find is the labels that are placed on us are often unwillingly placed on us Um, they can meant to humiliate or keep us down or they could just be nobody really knows us, so they're just going to say that label fits that person because I don't really know them full well. So one of the labels I had in high school uh, was class shyest. I was beat out by one other small introvert in the high school, and uh, he beat me, And but again, you're class shyest, so you can't really make it, you know, you just kind of be quiet about it. You're like, well, that makes sense that he's more shy than me. I mean, it's just the way it works is a class shyest. I mean, it's not like you want that that label either. It's not like you're looking for that label. Like, if I could just land class shyest by my senior year that would be fantastic right nobody shoots for that but there it was, and that was the label given to me. The ironic part was, if you were to talk to my parents, they'd be like, that is the wrong label. Uh, the right label is ADD. The right label is annoying. The right <laughs> label is, like, just constant. I mean, there was times in my life where my mother would actually, literally, she said this out loud. She looked out the window one day, and she looked, and I was probably talking to myself at some point, And she literally looked out the window, and she goes, there's something wrong with my boy. And I said, amen, that's my label, something wrong with my boy. Uh, and, and that was just the, the typical, you know, labels that we can get assigned. We all have them. We all have different labels that are placed on us. And like I said, most of the time, it's unwilling. Uh, but I want to look today at a label uh, that Christ donned. Uh, it was put on him. It was put on him by authorities that put this label on on our, on our Jesus. And it's a label that... Um, I would hope that as a church, I would hope this label would be something that we would emulate as well. Because here's the thing with Christianity in particular as a label. Uh, It really wasn't until after the crucifixion and it really wasn't until much, much later that the actual label of Christian was seen as a good thing. Um, There is a great book called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctives in the Roman World by Larry Herdrow. And and in this book, he talks about the idea that Christianity was a label that many did not want after the crucifixion. He says this, As with other examples in history of religion, Christianity seems to have begun as a term used by outsiders probably with a certain deris- derisive connotation, and then at some point thereafter was adopted among believers as self-designation. It was basically saying is the term Christianity started off as a very negative label. If you were labeled as a Christian, you were, you were poor, you were uneducated, you, were, you didn't know what was happening in the world, you just, you just didn't get it, and, and it was a really negative connotation to have the label placed on you. And it wasn't until much later that Christianity started to emerge as a really popular label. And now you can argue today whether Christianity is still a popular label or not or if it's even remotely a label at all you know it may be the point where we've just kind of bypassed and then don't even realize Christianity is even a thing. but as we enter into the sermon this morning, I want to ask the rhetorical question of if if the label that Christ receives would be the label that community Bible church would receive would you still follow him would you would you be honored by this label or would it kind of take you back? and I hope that we would own the label because this label is going to be lived out in Christ's life in a way in which we get even our mission statement that is on the wall in the back on the left. We're going to see a label that is placed on Christ, and then we're going to walk through this idea of intentional, authentic, and sacrificial this morning as we watch Christ work John chapter 18, okay? So if you get nothing else, if you fade out midway through, uh, just stick with me. We're looking at this label assigned to Christ, and as He lives it out, I truly believe you're going to see authenticity, intentionality, and sacrifice, and that we could emulate that today. So let's begin with the end in mind, and let's get to the label that was placed on Christ, and then we'll work backwards. The label uh, is actually the, the term Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's the label. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and there was a place card placed above the cross to, to label this King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. It was a label at his death, and it was a summation of his life. We get this out of John 19, and so let me read out of John 19, and then we'll come back to this picture in just a second. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, chapter 19, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate's response, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Don't question me. I want to spend our time looking at this sign. Go back just a a second. Because he says, I want this sign to be written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And you can kind of see those written there uh, on on the placard there. It would have looked maybe something like that. And this placard then was placed on the cross of the crucifixion. And it was meant to, to convey to everybody around... That this is who this is, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, let's get to where he gets this name. Let's get to where we see this in John chapter 18. So we enter into John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And just to give you a time frame of where this is happening, we looked at Monday through Thursday. This is about midnight on Friday morning. This is very early in the morning, possibly midnight, 1 a.m. on Friday, that we enter into this story in John chapter 18. Let's begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Not just often he met there. Many believe he was there every single night of Holy Week. He would go out with his disciples. He'd come back. This is the place where they'd, get, they'd set up base camp. was right at the base of this mountain in the Kidron Valley, night after night after night. And so they knew he was going to be there. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, "Whom do you speak?" And they answered, "Who do you seek?" I'm sorry. And they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." Now, a couple of things you're going to see throughout the story: Christ knows what's happening. This is not catching him off guard. I love the fact that even in a small sense, as we begin into this story, you see the very first action of this story is Jesus steps forward. I don't know if you've ever been in a line before where they're like, hey, first person, raise your hand if you want to do this. And nobody makes eye contact with the person in charge. Everybody's kind of looking the other direction. In fact, everybody's kind of being like, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. Jesus actually sees this crowd and mob coming, and he says, who do you seek? And just steps forward among everybody else. And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, And this, this term, this first part of this placard, was actually a term that, he, that was used far more often than the second term that you're going to see on the placard. This Jesus of Nazareth was actually a term that was used very often in Jesus' life, more so than King of the Jews. It's first used actually in Mark and in Luke, and the first time we see it in Mark and in Luke is not spoken by any human Get this. Jesus of Nazareth, the first time you see it in Mark and in Luke, the first time this name is given out in public in Mark and in Luke is at demons being terrified of this Jesus. Demons are terrified and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, we know who you are. You are the Holy One, Son of God. Please have mercy on us. (laughs) Now, that's incredible in and of itself. But we also know that it was used in John as well to identify not only his, his uh, humanity, but also his family. So in John chapter 1, verse 45, it says this, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This was his earthly title. Jesus of Nazareth was his human, earthly title. This was a name that was given uh, to him at his humanity. This is a name that would be given to him when he had to register. If he had a license, if he had a license this would go on his license. This was, this was who he was. And it probably was this name that was very ordinary in that, sta- in that time. It was a common name from a no-name town. And I think for us today, it's encouraging sometimes when you think, man, is this all God has for us? Is this all God can do, right? Sometimes we think, and we live in small rural areas, we see all this happening around the world, and we think we just can't make a difference around the world we, like we want to. And, and I often sometimes have this, this thought in my head, like this theme of a no-name guy from a no-name town. If you often have that feeling, please know Jesus had that name. He had the no-name name from no-name town. And this was who he was known by, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see it as the name that the Roman soldiers came to arrest him in, a common name. And so if you picture this, it's as if Jesus, this no-name, is surrounded by a bunch of other no-names, fishermen, and it's this group of nomads that nobody should ever even care about. But... This is where we see things start to turn in our story. Let's, begin, let's pick up for where we left off. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, came forward and said to him, Whom do you speak, seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> okay, apparently this no-name-from-nowhere town has got some authority. Apparently, this guy who we thought was going to be an easy mark, that we're just going to take him into custody, is different than maybe we thought. Because this king steps forward, and this words I am he, actually translates better in the Greek as, I am. Your king steps forward willingly with all the authority and power of I am. And when he says it, people fall backwards. Not just people Many estimate anywhere between 50 to 200 people, soldiers, were in this party to arrest him. So you got 50 to 200 Roman soldiers falling backwards in all their armor. Can you imagine the disciples at that moment being like, yeah, king, get them, right? <laughs> I am. And all of a sudden they fall back. It's a term that goes all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It is, if you remember in the life of Moses, this term I am is, is the, the, the name and title given to one who is self-existent. <laughs> I don't need anybody to create me. I have all the power to create on my own and I came into existence by my own being who created god god that doesn't work yes it does because he's other than us and outside of us so when he says I am he it is the self existent one of god he is the own he is his own power and needs power from no one else and even better in today's culture it is extremely gratifying to know that our king has his own power, needs it from no one else, and is not so insecure that he's going to try and grab it from somebody else. We're going to hear more about that at Easter, but I can't tell you the number of church leaders and church people that have fallen because of an abuse of power. They've tried to take something that wasn't theirs. Jesus is not so insecure that he's going to try and rob humanity of its power as if our power is anything attainable or wanting to be attained. I mean, he's got all the power. Why would he want something as measly as ours? He is in control. I love that this Jesus of Nazareth, this first first title is yes, yes. It is his humanity. Yes, it is his no name town ish area, right? It, but it's also a name that is not to be trifled with because it is met directly after with power and authority. Jesus is in complete control here. Let's pick up in verse 7 verse 7 through 9. So he asked them again. <laughs> After they got up, (laughs) after they've collected themselves, that was weird, right? They've collected themselves, should we still be doing this? And yet he steps forward again, whom do you seek? I don't know who the first guy was to ask, but it wouldn't have been me. If I just fell down by the words of I am and I had to pick myself back up and dust myself off in front of everybody else, my first words were, we're good. That would be mine. Like, let's just leave this guy. He's, he's, He's fine. Let's just walk away from this, boys, shall we? No, they proceed and say the exact same thing. And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. This time without the I am. This time without the in your face falling on your back. Right? This time the submission of Christ. I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Here's the beautiful thing about your king. You've just seen him display power, now you're gonna see him display meekness and yet still be in control of the situation. So I don't know if you can, if I can relate it to this way or not, but we, when we were uh, first married, owned this somewhat kind of a breed of a dog called a Chihuahua. We actually owned two, uh, and I know, you're like, really? There's a whole lot of judgment labels coming, I get it, I get it. But, but we had these two Chihuahuas, and one in particular, I think she was abused or something by the time we got, but she would just shake. Like everywhere she went, she would just shake. And uh, the first dog, this is, a, this is just a freebie. The first job, a dog we named Abby because of Abishag, and I don't know if have the story of David and Abishag, but Abishag was the lady that kept him warm. It, we thought it'd be really funny to name our chihuahua Abishag as if there was any warmth coming from a two-pound dog, but that was kind of the joke. So we named the dog Abby, and both of them, if you know anything about chihuahuas, they think, they think they are bigger than they are, right? You take these things for walks and they are just like, wah, 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 and like, you're gonna die. Like anybody could step on you at any moment and it's over, right? But you would pass Great Danes, these huge labs and they'd just be like, I got this, I got this. You know what I mean? And you're like, no, no, you don't. And you just like pump one little yank and they're like, right? Because they're that small, but they have the attitude of like, I've got this right? Because when I read this passage, I couldn't help but think of them and these huge dogs. And I think of this comparison of like these disciples and these Roman soldiers are like, we got this. We got this. And Christ and all of his power and authority is looking over them being like, what is your deal? Why are you still barking at me? You know what I mean? And they just think that they're stronger and they've got all the fur up and they're like, we got it, right? The power of the disciples, the power of these Roman soldiers was nothing because the king is ruling. And I love this proof of his ruling. He says, hey, I know you've come to arrest me. You need to let these guys go. And they do. Roman soldiers, just let them go. Okay, well, that seems reasonable. He's asked us to let them go. We should probably just let them go. I mean, like, that just doesn't happen, right? If you're arresting a Bob, you're arresting the Bob. You're not arresting just the... And so he's like, you need to let them go. These are not the ones you're looking for, right? He just lets them go, and they leave on their own accord. But he says it's even bigger than that. It's not just that he let them go. It's that he's fulfilling prophecy, for crying out loud. He says... I, I'm doing this to fulfill the word that was spoken of those you gave me. I have not lost one. Just to give you reference of what he's talking about is, is later in, in John. I'm sorry, earlier in John. But let's pick up actually just in verse 14 of chapter 10 where he says these words. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have no other sheep that are not in this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it back up again. Verse 18, here's this huge, huge statement of his authority, and then we'll get into the fulfillment of what he's trying to fulfill. But verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me not these little chihuahuas, not these little power-hungry humans that think they're going to win, but no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. (laughs) That's bold. That's bold. I am in control of this evening. Thank you very much. I tell you when it's okay to take me and when it's not okay to take me. And I'm okay to step forward. I'm okay to let my disciples go. This was to fill the the word that was spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. It's actually out of John uh, chapter 17, verse 12. And it says this, When I was with them, I kept them in your name. This is his high priestly prayer in John 17. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, and the scripture might be fulfilled. You see, he is in control. His name may not mean that he's in control. This Jesus of Nazareth thing, nobody cares about. this a small, insequential name, it may seem, but it's not. It's displaying humility and meekness because meekness is truly power under control. And that's what he's trying to display with Jesus of Nazareth. and does so well. But that still doesn't really tell us about where he got the name. So let's continue on in our story and let's watch him lead us in this idea of being authentic and intentional and sacrificial this morning. So I just want to read through some of this story together with you. Because not only were the Roman guards not in control, the religious elite also were not in control. So after he says these things, Peter has a moment. And uh, takes an ear off of a guy. Uh, We don't really hear it in John, but you hear it in Luke that he heals the ear and puts it back on. That's nice of him to do so. Uh, But in some weird fashion, he loses control, and Peter tries to take an ear off. And Jesus tells him in verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then we see him march forward in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father alive, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, it's a fun word, expedient that one man should die for the people. And Annas and Caiaphas were basically the mob bosses of the religious elite. Nobody messed with them. Nobody talked back to them. They held power, sway, and influence in any of the uh, church world at that point, although it's not really church. It's synagogue and Jewish, but they held all the power. And if you think mob bosses, this was the epitome because father-in-law gave power to son-in-law, and all of a sudden they just ruled over the temple, and whatever they said went. And so the first thing is he is sent to Annas and Caiaphas. And we're going to see a conversation happen indoors. But before we get indoors, we, we journey back outdoor of that temple. Does that make sense? So he's, he's been delivered. He's taken inside to, to Annas and Caiaphas. But here's what we see outside. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John. He likes to give himself credit in these really, really passive-aggressive ways. That's just John. Uh, since, that disciple was known, uh, since that disciple was known to the high priest. Again, John, passive-aggressive. I knew the high priest, the other guy didn't, just putting it out there. You're going to see that a lot in the book of John. Um, and so, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, again, John, who was known to the high priest, again, he says it again, it's got an issue, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch watching the door and brought Peter in. I brought Peter in. I let him have a moment. It's fine. But really, I'm the guy, right? So, so he brings him in and uh, the servant girl at the door says to Peter, you also are not one of the men's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, we don't have time to dive fully into this, but you can see that the outside did not match the inside. Peter's making excuses, I don't know him, and inside, Jesus is going to face trial and stand accused of being something That he truly was, but not in the way they're going to see it. And then just as a quick freebie here as well, did you notice the fact that Peter's by a charcoal fire, and when he gets reinstated in John later, he's by what? A charcoal fire. So God's really kind of cool, in fact, putting those little nuggets in there for us. So it has nothing to do with this. That's a freebie. Okay, John 18, beginning in verse 19. The high priest then questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, (laughs) If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong." But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And has then sent him bound to Caiaphas. What we see is Christ doesn't bend. He doesn't relent. He doesn't even attack them. He just simply states truth with integrity and says, this is the truth. This is how things work. And then outside again, you see Peter denying Jesus for a second time in 25 to 27. And then they take him in then before Pilate. Now, before we get into Pilate, I think the thing we see here, again, is this idea of integrity or authenticity. Authenticity in the fact that Christ is who he was in the temple. He was who he was when he spoke to everybody outside of the temple. And he's the same guy. He's the same person in front of the high priest before him. He says, hey, I spoke in the temple. If you have a problem with what I said, I said it all in public. I, didn't, I wasn't one way here and another way in front of you. I was the same guy teaching the same stuff that I am here. Because it's truly about being authentic. And I think if there's a label for community Bible church that I would love for us to have is authenticity. That you are the same person in public that you are in private. That you aren't just a a fake in public and, and and you're totally somebody different at home. Because authenticity, integrity... Is truly the thing that's going to make the most impact and influence. When we talk about this idea of integrity, authenticity, um, one of the leaders I listened to, Annie Stanley, says something like this. It's not a direct quote. But it's the idea that authenticity can also be thought of as authority or position or title, and when it's just seen as position or title, but there's no authenticity behind it, if it's just position and title, you're going to find that people will do the work for you because of your position and because of your title. And they're going to get things done because that's what they're paid to do at work. But ultimately, what authenticity grants you isn't just position and title. Authenticity gives you the invisible badge of moral authority. It gives you something beneath the surface. Your position and title have sway at work and motivates people to give you their hands. But authenticity is what accomplishes the task over the long haul and gives people gives you people's hearts over just their hands. And the reason I know this is if you're to try to apply your job title at home, Ever gone well? Do you know who I am? I don't care. <laughs> cool. Well, my boss cares because I've got a title at work, and you should know it's a really cool title. And uh, everybody at work knows that I get things done and I have control at work because they listen to me. When you get home, right, that title means that much, right? Do you know that I make, I don't care. Well, I do care in the fact that it gives me my stuff. But I really don't care about your title, really. I don't. Because ultimately what they care about isn't so much your title and authority, they care about your authenticity. Are you the same person carrying that title at work as you are at home? Because that's what's going to impact your family and give you long-term success and not just this immediate success of getting a job or a task accomplished. Your authority transcends work. Your authority motivates people to give you their hearts and not just their hands to accomplish long-term success. This authority or this authenticity he he has of Christ is what you see. It's underneath the surface. He doesn't demand a title in front of these people, but it's this authenticity that gives him power and influence. You're going to see that as we look at Pilate next, as we think of this idea of authenticity. Christ is the same outside as he is inside. So verse 33 so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, Are you, well, let me, let me just back up just, just for a second. We, we see him first in 28 through, through 30. Let me just kind of show you this, and then we'll go into 33. Then they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas. The governor's headquarters was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but eat the Passover. That's a whole thing. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, take him to yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, that's this kind of story. Okay. This was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So they said, we want death for this guy. They're taking him to Pilate to get this death. And all of a sudden, let's pick into verse 33 as we see the second title come in this morning. And that is king of the Jews. So Pilate entered his headquarters, verse 33, again, and called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? Are you truly king of the Jews? Now, here's the interesting thing. We said that the, the Jesus of Nazareth was told a lot in the Gospels. This term, king of the Jews, is not mentioned but really one other place in all of the New Testament and one other place in the Old Testament. So this king of the Jews was a very, it was a term that was not used very often. But here's the significance of this. This king of the Jews was used in Zechariah 9, chapter chapter 9, verse 9, to say of a king who would come and deliver his people as the Messiah. This term, king of the Jews, was used secondly in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, and it was used by the wise men as they were looking for the king of the Jews. This term, king of the Jews, was used at his birth and will be used at his death. But there's a lot of weight to this idea of king of the Jews. And Jesus before Pilate now enters into a sparring match in which Jesus will lead with intentionality. We talked about the idea of authenticity. Now I want you to see the idea of him leading with intentionality in verses 33 to 34. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said, Are you king of the Jews? And this is crazy. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? You see, what Pilate gets here isn't just Jesus, he gets sassy Jesus because what he gets is Jesus who's like, did, did you come up with this all on your own or were you dependent upon these measly little Jewish people to give you the title of which you're going to destroy me for? Pilate doesn't like the response, but man, did Jesus do it. It was just such a smart, like just, you don't even know you got slapped, right? I mean, you don't even know it until after you're done. You're kind of like, I think he just, he just, he did. Did you say this of your own, did you come up with this all on your own, Pilate? King of the Jews, that's a cool title. Was that you? Or you just doing what they want you to do? Your little chihuahuas over here, are, are you just doing what they want you to do? Or is this truly what you think? I am. Are you really going to make a judgment call from these low-level Jews? I thought you were in charge, Pilate. I thought you were the one making the calls here. We see this. How do I get that? We see this in 35. Pilate answers, am I a Jew? (laughs) Sassy Jesus struck a nerve, right? Because all of a sudden, he's like, you're coming at me? I'm not one of you. Do you know who I am? Right? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> I love it. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is like, you want authority. You think if I were to truly fight this, do you not think I could fight this? Now with this ragtag of disciples. I'm talking with authority and power from heaven. That's how I fight this thing. I'm coming at you with angels, brother. Like, I'm not dependent on little Peter over here who ran away from a girl of charcoal fire. That's not who I'm working with. I'm working with angels and authorities in heaven to bring this to, to pass. So if you think my kingdom is here, you are sadly mistaken. And he's intentional about pointing this stuff. He's intentional about derobing Pilate. He's intentional about being, Pilate, you have no authority truly here. You have no rule over me, Pilate, because my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 37 to 38, then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. <laughs> Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. That's just mean, right? It's again like, well, apparently, if you're this all powerful Pilate and you declared that I'm a king, apparently your power and influence say that I'm a king. When in reality, fully aware, Pilate has no power here. Pilate himself knew he had no power here. That's why he's so bent on getting Jesus away from him, because if the Roman authorities above him find out that he's spending time on this trial, he's in trouble. Pilate has no authority, Pilate has no power. You say that I'm king. For the purpose I was born and this purpose I've come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? You see, intentionality isn't just derobing Pilate in this scenario. He's also intentionally poking at him and saying, if you knew the truth, you'd be free. Because those who listen to my voice know truth. Which was a big issue for Pilate. We find later that this really bothered him. Because what is is this truth? Intentionality of Christ to go into this part of his life knowing he's facing death. But along the way, he's going to do everything he can to model authenticity, intentionality. As he stands before Pilate, derobes him and tells him of the true power that he has and yields. And all of this As he's facing facing his death. Now, I don't know if for you, for me, I've been in very, very non-tense situations before, and I've run away like a coward. Anybody been there before? Like, it's not even that big of a deal. Like, somebody's fighting for their opinion on something, and you agree with them, but you find out that your friends don't agree with them, and so you're kind of like, yeah, I totally don't agree with that. And you stand over here, and you kind of cowardly work your way out. That's just in a disagreement. We're talking about Christ who's going to his own death, who could have very easily just said, I'm going to just... Just give them what they need. I'm going to just tell them what they they need to get done so I can get to my death. No, he's fully in control here, and he's intentional about bringing these things out of Pilate. It's as if he's going to his death saying, I'm going to save as many as I can along the way to get to my final end. And so with intentionality is this idea that if we wear this label well as Community Bible Church, if we truly live out intentionality well, it means that we, in conversations, we, we do like Jesus does, and, and we actually start to kind of dig deeper than just, how's your week? Fine, right? How, how, how's, how's it going? It's going good. Okay, cool. Um, so you want to talk about sports next? Because that's probably the next thing on the line. Yeah, let's talk about that. Nothing wrong with that. I love it. But if that's as deep as your friendships go, and they're not intentional about really getting to the heart of issues, you're, your friend... <laughs> could be dying on the inside, and you've gotten years of surface conversation with them without ever going deep and intentional in their life. As Community Bible Church, I hope that we, when we think intentionality, we don't just think reaching all the lost. That's part of intentionality. But I hope that you think, when you think intentionality, you think, how do I be intentional with the friends God's given me? That I can sit in a living room and conversation, and I can awkwardly ask the question that I know is going to be awkward to answer, but I can ask, hey, what's God doing in your life right now, man? What's he growing in you? What's he developing you? What's he taking out of you? Where, Where have you seen God work this last week? And we all know, like, when that conversation happens, like, it's great in a community group setting, but it gets real weird around dinner tables, right? But what if it didn't get weird around dinner tables, is what I'm asking. What if it just became normal for us to just hear how we're really doing? Now, again, let's be honest, right? You want to be smart with this. Like, if you're constantly that person at every dinner party, hey, how are you growing in Jesus? You're not going to get invited to many dinner parties. Let me just put that out there, okay? You're not Christ. You didn't get it. you know, I get that. You're going to be like, if we invite them over, we got to go into the whole five years of our backstory. Like, I don't have time for that. I just want a dinner, Okay. I'm saying for those that you're building into, for those that you truly care, those friends in your life, do you have moments like that is all I'm asking? Do you have moments where you're intentional about asking the hard things, where Jesus is asking these hard things of Pilate? Do you have the intentionality to ask the hard things in return? After he says these things, he says to them. He he says to the the crowd, "I find no guilt in him." And then you get Barabbas, and we're going to look more at that as we go towards Good Friday. But for this morning, I think these two words on this placard of Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is this beautiful, beautiful, this beautiful uh, title that is given to one who is humble and meek, and comes at you under authority of the Father is truly authentic in how he deals with those inside and outside, but also that he is intentional. He is intentional as he sees these things happen. And he's trying to get Pilate to understand these things. Not only do you see this as authentic, intentional, we obviously see the sacrifice then as he's placed on the cross and this placard is put above him. Let me wrap up this morning uh, as we think about Holy Week with 19 again. And I want you to think through As we look at this verse again in chapter 19, verse 19, I want you to think through who ultimately put the sign up. If you want intentionality, if you want authenticity, right, and sacrifice, I'm amazed that in the grand scheme of what God's doing during Easter, as he sends his son to the cross, I'm amazed at who God will use along the way to get his son's name and reputation out into the community. Just for a second, remind yourself of who actually put this sign on the cross. It wasn't his disciples. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. It wasn't Christ saying, hey, I'm going to my death. Can you at least give me the benefit of people seeing my name? Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. That's all the language that would have been spoken at that time. Anybody and everybody who could read could find significance in reading that statement. That that Pilate put it in all three was meant to be a dig on Jesus, it was meant to be, let's humiliate him in front of everybody. We're going to put his names out so that everybody can read his names. Everybody can be humiliated with him. Everybody can mock him. Everybody can jeer at him because nobody should believe that this is who it is. So the chief priest said to the Jews to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather the man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, and This is so crazy cool that God will use insecure, sinful, leaders like Pilate to accomplish his will because Pilate's response is what? I have written what I've written. It's as if God put a stamp on this and said, I've written what I've written, and everybody would be able to see this no-name man from a no-name town is truly the king of the Jews. Even at his death, the gospel is getting proclaimed, and I love that. So lastly, as we just end, let me just say this. As we think about intentional, authentic, and sacrificial, and and it's a broad term, right? It's it's hard to nail down. But let me just add this. Know that as we journey towards Easter as a church, hopefully we get that label. But know this. None of you in this room, me included, will ever be able to live those words out perfectly. Not one person in this room is going to be able to nail it every single week. I'm intentional, I'm authentic, I'm sacrificial. No, typically we're going to nail the other ones. I'm selfish, I'm self-absorbed, I'm I'm insecure. I'm whatever those things are, right? We are not going to nail this perfectly. Here's the other thing you need to know about this. You're going to get tired and it's okay not to nail it every single day. Why? Because you're not ultimately the one people are looking for. They're looking for Jesus. They're not looking for you take the weight and Superman cape off your shoulders for a second and just stand underneath your king and say, Jesus, you can nail this perfectly on a regular basis all the time. Would you help me nail it this week? Would you help me live this out this week? It's okay to get tired. It's okay to not nail it every single week. You can't possibly do it. And that's why we have this thing called Holy Week where we look towards the king and we look toward this one who truly is all of those things and lives it out perfectly. We can trust Jesus that he will use us as we attempt to love and serve him this week. Let me pray for you as we wrap out. And then we just want to sing out declaratively um, this morning as we, as we close. So let me pray for you this morning. Pray for me as we wrap up. Father, I thank you for this story of your, your, your death and, and where you're heading. Ultimately, God, we realize that you are the only one who can accomplish these things only you can live this out perfectly only you can truly be intentional and authentic and sacrificial and teach us to do the same so i pray god that we would as your church one take it seriously to be intentional and sacrificial this week as we journey towards easter and maybe that's just simply inviting somebody that we wouldn't normally invite. Maybe that's simply just having a conversation with somebody that we normally wouldn't sit down and have a conversation with. Maybe it's just being intentional with somebody here and be like, man, I've been a terrible listener and a terrible friend. I haven't asked them some hard stuff lately or some deep stuff lately. I've just talked about surface. So I pray, God, whatever it is you'd lead us this week of Holy Week as we journey towards Good Friday and ultimately to the resurrection, I pray this week we would absorb ourselves in you. As we said in Corinthians, that as we look at you, as we behold you, we are transformed by you. I pray that you would do that in our lives this week. As we go, may we sing this out as de- declarative of what we truly believe and who you are. And Father, that we would then share that with those that you put in contact with us this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?